From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash results to claim your credit. That's LinkedIn.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Somebody please think of the children. 
and welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Peter Collins Campbell. His deeper, deeper, Jesus, his debut feature film, Dimland, debuted just a few weeks ago at the Chattanooga Film Festival. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yay. Uh, I We're appreciate so- it. I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking... Off to a great uh, start. <laughs> I this year recorded like seven episodes of my own podcast, and I thought I got a real good hang on it, but apparently it all goes out the fucking window when I go on someone else's. I was gonna say hey, it's you know. very different being a guest on a podcast because I was a guest on a podcast for the first time last year, and I was like, I don't know how to talk to anybody. Like, I don't know how I know. to. I don't know talk about myself <laughs> we have the best yeah. roles right now because all we do is ask questions and have a conversation whereas like we <laughs> gotta put you on the spot <laughs> make you answer yeah. <laughs> speaking mm. of putting you on the spot how did you get introduced to horror <laughs> uh so this is actually so I, I i have listened to several episodes of your podcast and what i have gleaned is that um this might be an unusual response, but I actually, up until very recently, had almost no tie to horror. Ooh. Like, oh, really? I literally, until Chattanooga, never even once considered Dimland to be a horror-adjacent movie. In fact, this is something that I was joking about. I, I, I don't know with who, but uh, probably on Twitter or something. But, like, last summer, we did these, like, virtual test screenings where I just like put out a Facebook ad, the film was in a slightly different cut than it is right now. And we just got like strangers to respond to a Facebook ad and like, you know, give unfiltered opinions about what they saw. And literally at least five people were like, uh, when I clicked this, I thought it was a horror movie and this is like some hipster shit. And like, (laughs) I like that's literally like verbatim what one of the responses was. And I was just like, yeah, no. But then we go to Chattanooga, which is like actual fans of horror. And like a lot of people liked it like on those terms, which was fascinating to me because I'm not really a horror guy. I like a lot of like cult films that I guess would be in the umbrella universe of horror, but like, you know, it's, uh, it's not something that I really was ever drawn to. Interesting. Wow. That's That's fascinating. So did you ever watch horror movies as a kid? Like, was that ever something that like you did or that you experienced at all? I have to say no. Wow. <laughs> this is, I don't know if I'm, no, I'm but fucking that's... like booted off the podcast <laughs> right now. <laughs> no, but that's actually really cool because but... we talked to a lot. I mean, like obviously a lot of people we talked to have been horror fans forever. So it's really cool yeah. to kind of get that perspective from you though, who like didn't really grow up watching horror. And you have this cool choice today, but also here did a movie that's not necessarily like a stereotypical horror movie but it has horror elements and it has like anyway it's just yeah i looked at the movies you sent over about like what had been covered on your show before and like i thought of indiana jones and the temple of doom right now or at first because i have a distinct memory of like just being at my friend's house when i was like eight and watching the scene where they pull the heart out of a guy and i was like Mm -hmm. very unnerved by that um (laughs) In a deep way. But I would say that the Iron Giant has 
an atmosphere and themes that have had an everlasting effect on my anxiety, which is something that I, as an adult, have more intensely dealt with. And I think that that maybe is a more interesting conversation point than just like, I was very freaked out by the fact that they pulled a heart out of a guy. <laughs> but valid. Because it is pretty fucking creepy. I remember seeing it's that fucking scene horrifying. and being like, absolutely. I, I was like, this, you have to turn this off, mom. Like, <laughs> and now here yeah. I am. Body horror is like, that fucks me up. I have plenty of like little weird stories about horror, but like just not really. And it was, they all mostly are like, let's try a horror movie. And then I watch one and I'm like, <laughs> I can't handle it. And then. <laughs> Do, what are some examples of those? Well, before the pandemic, the last time that I had a panic attack uh, was after Midsummer. Oh my god, after I had a panic midsummer. attack after Midsummer. Bad times. <laughs> great movie. Bonding great over movie. our mutual anxiety traumas after watching Midsummer, yes. And like, it is a great movie, but I walked out and was like, I have to throw up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, there is something about the, there is something about like seeing dehumanizing on film like yeah. literally they're taking bodies that used to be people and like repurposing them for inhuman needs and that as a theme is like it just makes me you know f dissociate <laughs> yeah and i had just been diagnosed with bipolar disorder so that representation of the beginning of the Not sister great. i was like that doesn't make me feel very good about my no. <laughs> i was like that's no. fun. that fucking sucks and then the rest of it was just an absolute anxiety attack of a movie and i was like i'm not yeah. having a good time <laughs> no <laughs> anyway yeah. good movie though yeah good movie. i bought this fucking a24 special edition like <laughs> like see what's wrong i would with love me? to I would love to own that movie on fucking 4K and like watch the director's cut, but also don't want another panic attack. <laughs> Can't I really both blame you don't there. and do like I never want to watch that movie again, and I'm really excited to watch the movie again. I know. I wish there was just some way. Maybe we could like sync it up and like take a fucking Xanax <gasps> first and then watch it. I'll just pop a couple edibles and I'll like I'll just vibe. That would make me have the experience of the characters in the movie, so I might skip the that's edibles. Fine. No, that's fine. I got that. <laughs> Oh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I would love to try that movie again in like a safe space. Yeah, let's hold uh, let's hold virtual hands and watch it together again. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um. So 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 <laughs> I'm fascinated. I'm, I'm just I'm fascinated. You said that you weren't really attracted to horror at, at in mo most of your life. Did you stumble upon any horror movies when you were a kid, or did you pretty much stay clear of everything? Um. Hmm stumble upon um i basically steered clear of anything that i was like the point of this movie is to make <laughs> me be scared okay uh, <laughs> and mostly if i if i watched anything that was horror-y it was usually by way of something that kind of like tamped it down so like first it was discovering tim burton um. <clears throat> You know, yeah. um, at like 11 or something and then just becoming a little fucking emo kid and 
absorbing everything that that man ever did. Um, yep. And then the the second wave was discovering David Lynch. Okay. Oh. And, you know, David Lynch, I wouldn't call him a horror filmmaker, but like that type of fear and unsettlement is like what I am drawn to. Okay. okay. Yeah, because like he's not horror, but he's definitely horrifying, if that makes sense. Like it's right. just yeah. horrifying imagery that's very surreal. What's your favorite Lynch movie? It depends what like <laughs> I'll quote Twin Peaks season three, which uh the line uh what year is this? <laughs> just like it depends <laughs> depends what fucking year. Um I would say that I mean Mulholland Drive is just such a perfect like object. I mean, it it deserves to be the Lynch movie with an Academy Award, I think. Um and the scene in that movie, the Silencio scene is like something that I think about like a, a lot and like affects me the idea of just kind of like being cognizant in one moment of like the sheer horror of like multiple lives at the same time somehow being able to feel that yeah. is just like an astounding thing i'm like it doesn't even it doesn't even say that in the movie that that is what is going on but somehow i get that i get like how utterly despondent you would have to be to be like i am living multiple lives in different like realities and they're all bad there's no escape from the all bad it's a lot of existential dread right there <laughs> i i have to admit i've i've i cannot say that i've seen a lynch film except maybe really? dune that's fascinating you ever watched um, Twin and Peaks? maybe a couple episodes of twin peaks a i couldn't get episodes. into it wow. i couldn't get into it mary beth oh god Dang. it's all coming out <laughs> The show is canceled, uh, <laughs> everybody. No more. Terry and I are no longer friends. Hey, we've had 92 episodes. It's been <laughs> it's a good been run. It's been a good run. <laughs> if you like, like, horror, then I think that I could recommend some particular David Lynch movies that are a little bit more, like, I mean, Eraserhead is the original, like, midnight movie. <laughs> It's, an, it's incredible that movie is fucking ridiculous and my favorite is that bo burnham and in inside referenced that movie and said his, yes, dick, his yeah. dick looks like the baby from her racer head and i was like i'm glad yeah. that this continues to be a culturally relevant film so good i don't even know what to say to that <laughs> you're like what does any of this fucking mean <laughs> also a a under an under sung pun intended uh a bit from that movie is that the song by the lady in the radiator fucking bangs it does bang there's a woman Somebody there's like, a woman who lives behind a radiator Terry. It's fine. yeah and, and just, her cheeks and she's look got like, like really clay yeah oh okay 
It's just a fucking, it's fucking great it's movie. It's a great movie. It's fucking weird, but it's incredible. So where does where does Dune like this is my only entry point to, to Lynch. How does Dune fit in with the rest of his I actually love that. I, I love that your only entry point is Dune. Because it's so That's like the inverse of every yeah. David hey, Lynch was, fan. I was a sci-fi kid and a fantasy kid growing up. So like I was like, Dune, yeah. It is nothing like his rest of his movies. Like his movies are like so like they're both grounded and make zero sense and like this is sci-fi like it's just so beyond anything and like his movies don't have big set pieces like that like it's more it's dune has about 103 percent more exposition than any (laughs) david lynch movie (laughs) like it is (laughs) it's the only david lynch movie that you will fully understand and that's saying a lot because i barely understood dune right i tried to read the book I, I didn't dislike the I book. haven't I even made it all the way through Dune. And it's not because I like fucking took some line in the sand and it was just like, <laughs> no, this is bad. <laughs> I want to love Dune, but uh, I mean, what can you say? It's <laughs> it's a frustrated. You can feel how frustrated he is yeah. because some of the stuff is very David Lynch. Mm. Some of the aliens and the way that they do the atmosphere around the aliens and like the design and everything and some of the sets and the big wide angle lenses. It's like, okay, he's trying. And then it'll like have to have a fight scene. And it's like, it's like horrific CGI laser discs. Yeah. David Lynch. I mean, Twin Peaks season three has like after effects level. Oh yeah. Uh, cgi (laughs) and that's basically where he was comfortable for the rest of his career so boundary pushing cgi from david lynch is not what you want (laughs) nah um okay so moving on from david lynch i guess uh can you tell our listeners a little bit about your movie dimland which could kind of fit into like a david lynchy weird vibe um that's my transition. Yeah, I mean, it's it's some weird shit. Um, I, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's that's it. I get so tired of like of trying to describe the plot that I literally just default to that when I'm like talking to people that I know won't actually be too invested in the plot. But I know that's not you guys. Um, well, okay, describe but, your movie in one word. Besides weird, uh, I can't do that. Okay, um, fine. <laughs> I, no, no, it's it's uh, Dimland is a sort of it's a movie about a very depressed woman uh, who is in a relationship that is kind of on its last legs, and she takes this impromptu, like uh, impulsive trip to this cabin that she used to go to as a kid that her uncle owns. She hasn't been there in years, and. Um, She gets there and she basically discovers that like it is in a state of being uh, torn down and turned into an Airbnb, but they stay there anyway, kind of out of like spite and are basically just like squatting in this, you know, half made Airbnb. And (laughs) while she's there, she rediscovers this whole other world and uh, character that uh, is constantly uh masked and wearing like kind of cloaky clothes and uh knows her and um sort of gets sucked into this other world that she like repressed memories of and uh is starting to realize she might want to like return to forever and it 
pushes, you know, her relationship to even further disrepair. And yeah, that's like the most fucking tangenty synopsis ever. But uh, that's that is the plot. (laughs) (laughs) So this movie is magical and Mm. it's very sad and very good. And it made my heart feel both happy and sad because it captures being our age and being kind of depressed and trying to figure out what the fuck you're doing with your life, but also wanting to be a kid again. And it really captures that vibe really well. And especially with Rue and I love him and he's, Mm. I'm just like curious, like where'd you come up with the design? It's like such a simple, it's like pretty simple, but it's so effective. Like that mask is amazing. And so I was just curious, like where the inspiration for his character and his, like his aesthetic came from for you. I think it was all just like subconscious ripoff of other things, um, which I mean, <laughs> uh, I'm really bad at uh, taking <laughs> praise, so I'm gonna fucking deflect everything. Um, like, great, awesome. Uh, <laughs> um i was listening to the like the last few episodes of your podcast and i was just like man these guys are fucking electric they're so good at like you know talking the talk about about their movies and um i i kind of crumble under uh eyes um but like uh, do not perceive me do not perceive me exactly (laughs) um but like Rue was, it, I I just, I wrote the script. I had not visualized him really whatsoever. Uh, and then I just started like drawing. I think the first drawing of Rue I did was the drawing, the the shot of uh, Bryn with her head in Rue's lap. Mm-hmm. And there, okay. it's the wide, that was like the first picture that was like created for the movie. And also was the first camera test that we did of oh, the mask. Cool. And that was like when that like single image is like rip one after another was like the levels that it got to was like proving to me that the movie was going to work maybe because like first it was the drawing and the drawing kind of like said something to me. And then we did the camera test and it was on set and like we didn't really have any budget for like real camera tests. So we just the day that Nate, the actor, got there to set. We, like, you know, did a test of the dim land lighting, and we had him and Martha, who had never interacted before, uh, just kind of, like, do stuff on camera, and then that worked, and then, you know, the scene worked. So that is kind of, like, the central image of the film, kind of. I love Rue. I wanted to give Rue a very giant big hug. Um <laughs> I just I love the imagery and it, it's it's so I'm I'm still kind of thinking about the fact that that uh, you really had no clue that there's like some horror elements to this because even though I wouldn't say this is a full horror movie there are some very striking images particularly in the dim land and when you see kind of the 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 truth of of Rue when his mask comes off or his gloves come off and you kind of see that there it, it brought to mind a bunch of I, it's very horror tangentially related, I would say, and it's very haunting. And so I'm also kind of curious uh, if you weren't interested in horror, were you interested in fantasy or sci-fi growing up? Absolutely. I mean, okay. like, um, I, I would say, like, I could point to ten different movies that I watched as a kid that are directly like influential on on dimland even if i wasn't necessarily thinking about it at the time Uh, like and going back to the design uh of rue like it's 
it's very clearly influenced by No Face from Spirited Away. Like oh, that yep. was yeah. I think Mary like, Beth mentioned that to me too because I I don't think I've ever seen Spirited Away, but Mary Beth is like it reminds me of Miyazaki and and stuff. Yeah. No Face. I did the yeah I did the design of of Rue and then almost immediately kind of like recognized the similarity, but I just kind of wanted to try it anyway. I think in the discord chat um, uh, for Chattanooga, someone was asking about that and like someone brought up Dave McKean, uh, which I was like, that's no one had said that yet, but like, that's the other big one is like, I, when I draw, it's just Dave McKean ripoffs. It's like, it's just like his style of like, um, sloping, nose that like is very mm-hmm. angular and kind of like a grecian way um and mirror mask was like yep. a huge uh influence on me like as a filmmaker when i was like 16 and watching mirror mask and just realizing like you can make a movie that is not like a crazy art house, like no narrative movie. It can have a narrative structure, but the world that it exists in just is like paintings. Like Mirror Mask is just a 90 minute slideshow of Dave yep. McKean digital artwork. And he made that exist as a narrative. And I was just like, oh, the in that movie also is probably the other big influence on Rue's design which is oh i forget the name but she has a friend in the movie that always wears a mask it's been so long since i've seen that movie he's irish i have never seen this movie and it looks absolutely fucking bananas oh you would love it mary beth you would love it if you want to see uh you know a bunch of great british character actors just like made up in the wackiest like costumes ever and like becoming part of you know paintings (laughs) paintings <laughs> that's that's what it what it's got for you that sounds incredible <laughs> yeah i mean uh so yeah i basically said to someone on the discord like rue is basically like dave mckean redesigning no face cool. and that's an awesome comparison because i can see that immediately yeah. it was the mask itself was like designed for the type of lighting that it was gonna have like mm. i at the time was like very obsessed with just like soft top light just as a visual image. Mm-hmm. And I kept trying to put it in music videos. The whole idea of Dimland kind of sprouted from the fact that I just really wanted to do all these music videos where the idea was we'll have one light and we'll hang it above them. And then I'll digitally paint out the light from the shots. And then it'll just be like this traveling soft top light in like void and no artist ever wanted to use those treatments. <laughs> and I just was like, okay, fine. I'll make a 90-minute fucking music video. <laughs> I love that. Okay, you mentioned the effects, and you mentioned kind of you the idea of digit, digitally removing stuff. Did you do the effects of this, or who, who did the effects for, for this movie? I did about... 80% of the effects. Wow. Holy shit. I, the, the digital creatures and creations uh, in Dimland were all done by a friend of mine who goes by Nick Visuals. He is just this insane digital artist. He just, uh, I think Adult Swim 
just showed some of his animations as like bumpers oh, uh, wow. okay. on the channel, which is like, in my eyes, the biggest achievement ever. Yeah, absolutely. Those are the, always the striking things that I remember about the Adult Swim. What when I used to watch it was the the bumpers yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So cool. He's great. He did the he did those, and then the rest of the uh, the stuff that I that I felt out of my depth to do uh, was done by uh, several like you know friends or or like art students. One art student. <laughs> um and uh some friends at uh a post house in in new york it was like wow. me and then like five other people took on like one shot each cool wow that's incredible so peter we've talked about dimland you've talked about your kind of history with horror or not so much history with horror but <laughs> what movie are we talking about today we're talking about one of my letterboxed top fives hell yeah uh, which is the iron giant hell yeah so okay iron giant uh, a giant alien robot voiced by vin diesel crash lands near the small town random uh, <laughs> i know rockwell maine in 1957 exploring the area a local nine-year-old boy named hogarth which is the best name discovers the robot and soon forms a unlike an unlikely friendship with him when a paranoid government agent becomes determined to destroy the robot hogarth and beatnik dean mccoppin must do what they can to save the misunderstood machine the names in this movie are just fantastic kent mansley dean mccoppin hogarth hughes i love the names so good kent mansley works for the government All right, so take us back to when you saw this and give us your horror story. How old were you? What about it scared you? Tell us everything. I'm curious. I don't remember the exact first time that I watched the movie because uh, it came out in theaters when I was six. When I was six. When were you uh, born? And 94. Okay. I'm so um, old. <laughs> I... Such a refrain on this podcast, but it's true. <laughs> I was ninety three, I mean, so Terry is an old man. <laughs> hey, you ever you ever fucking hang out with like rappers that are blowing up while you are just doing like little music videos for them for like five hundred dollars? They're like fucking nineteen and have like a million followers. <laughs> it's insane. Uh, um, so there's all there's levels, uh, but like. <laughs> Uh, I definitely did not see it in theaters, which now knowing more of the history of Iron mm, Giant, mm-hmm. my one of my other favorite film podcasts, uh, Blank Check, did an amazing episode on the Iron Giant. It was like fucking two and a half hours long. And I learned so much about uh, Brad Bird's like rise through that uh, and just yeah. how like they I mean, like Warner Brothers, like canceled their own animation department while the movie was being made so it was a total flop when it came out so it makes sense Mm -hmm. that i didn't see it in theaters uh because nobody saw it in theaters um Um, i did go on i mean that's it that's all i had to say (laughs) (laughs) i cried yeah yeah Yeah, i cried it was my i became me and my stepdad's favorite movie to watch together uh and it has impacted me for my entire life (laughs) We'll get to that, but Jesus. Yes, I I hope that we do, because it is, I mean, it's like a blueprint for just my fucking psyche. Mm. And like, 
So, okay. I don't, I don't remember the first time seeing the film, but I do remember just like many times watching it as a kid and like, you know, because it is not a horror movie because I wasn't like, you know, repulsed by it. And for the first like 80, 75 minutes of the movie, it's like everything that is on screen is just like how I wanted to be as a kid. It was like, oh, yeah. oh my God, Hogarth gets to stay home alone and watch TV. Cool. Hogarth has fucking army boots under his bed. Cool. <laughs> He's got a BB gun and he knows to like fucking wrap a flashlight around it. That's like awesome. <laughs> yeah, and just I love like that. Hogarth was just like my seven year old, like dream version of myself. Like he, he knows how to shoot. He has his own camera and he can develop film. I was just yeah, like, what? everything fucking, about it. What? Like a black room? Like who are you? Or dark room? Like who are you? <laughs> he's so cool. He's and amazing. I still think he's so cool as an he adult. He is. He's very cool. I love um, him. He's my favorite part of this movie. Of course, now as an adult, my, my like icon has shifted to obviously Dean. Oh. Uh, because now I just look at Dean's life and I'm like, well, that's what I want. I want to that live in a junkyard he... and make art and just like yes, drink coffee and I not want have to talk it. to anybody. <laughs> He's so cool and He's I so have a crush cool. on him. I love him. <laughs> I I, also... I, it's, it's funny. I was watching because I, I haven't seen this since uh, I first saw it. And we'll get to that in a minute. But but yes, when I when I watched this this time, I was like, oh, yeah, Dean is really cute. I love this character i am also i'm crushing on this man he's hot as fuck and he's yeah. voiced by harry connick jr he mm, looks yeah. nothing Great like voice. this <laughs> i was i was like almost Dean. about to say and voiced by harry dean stanton <laughs> <laughs> very, different. very different very different slightly different performance Just a, a different vibe yeah very. i'd love to see that that take on the character though <laughs> I don't know, kid. This is like <laughs> Coffeezilla. <laughs> he would have smoked a few more cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. Um. So what? Uh. Do, what about it actually terrified you, though? Okay. Yes, I keep tangenting. Um. No, I love it though. Uh. Okay. So for the first seventy-five minutes of the movie, it's like fun Spielberg adjacent, mm-hmm. like. Kent Mansley is like a, a buffoon and just like, you know, scary. He's his his like force of like potentially being very dangerous is always very clear, which is a through line in Brad Bird's villains, I think, mm. is that like I mean like in similarly in The Incredibles not uh Frozone, what's it uh syndrome. Like he's silly and like totally insecure. And like a little fucking incel dude, but like he's very scary, yes. like because of that. And similarly, Kent is like it's funny that he's so insecure and such a square, and like you know feels like he needs to prove himself. But it's because of that that he is so unhinged. He will do anything to like win. Well, mm-hmm. and watching them unravel like that the whole movie too, like that, just like that, yeah. like steep decline is really scary to watch. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like he is what's wrong with America. <laughs> um, it gets to that last, you know, twenty minute stretch, and suddenly, I mean, not suddenly. I think it sets it up very well. It's not like a hard turn or something, but like 
it gets into a mode of like action climax that I was not familiar with at that age, mainly just around the fact that like, okay, first you have the scene where like Hogarth is literally like interrogated and drugged by Kent. Yep. Um, and you start to get this feeling of like, first there's the, the feeling of like forces beyond what you can control, which is the fucking U S military. And he explains it in a way that like, as a kid, he explains it to be scary to Hogarth, but mm-hmm. as a kid, I'm like, he's saying we can we can make it very difficult for you to have like a normal life. And he's like breaking it down in this very eerie, like childlike way. And yep. I was starting to like recognize that like, oh, there's like it's like baby's first like Kafka-esque <laughs> ideas in that <laughs> yeah. movie. Just that like, oh, the system that you live in can fuck you mm-hmm. just because they're trying to get something. So that's part one. And then there's the nuke. Yeah, and like, like casually that, like just going to destroy an entire town of people. Whatever. That introduced me to like doom anxiety. Mm. And Jesus. that is something that has defined my entire life. Uh, I don't blame the Iron Giant on that. I would have discovered it some other way. But like the moment where the missile goes up and then the answer is not immediately like, oh, shit, well, we got to like go and do this. And it's like a race against time. Nope. Nope. Everyone just says, well, that's it. Yep. We're all going to die. Like every care. So you've got fucking Hogarth's mom says first the general says there's no way to survive the army guy says there's no way to survive his mom says should we get to a shelter and then dean his father figure says it wouldn't make a difference and then they just gather and wait and i was like (laughs) what what children's movie for children yeah Ah. yeah so i mean um yeah, some of my some of some of my like Hall of Fame panic attacks have been about nuclear holocaust. So like, <laughs> you know, um thank yeah, you that Iron really Giant. Stu- <laughs> yeah. Really stuck with me. Wow. Uh very existential. Um yeah. for sure. Um absolutely. <laughs> I okay, so there's there's a couple there's a couple points that just popped in my mind as, as you were talking. The first one is um, I love that you talk about Dean being sort of like the, the stand and father figure, because what I found here when I was watching this uh, for the, for this, this episode was this idea of the chosen family versus sort of like your biological family. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. what, what I think is so insidious about Kent is the way that he kind of inserts himself into Hogar's family as if he is a father. Right. Because the the language that he uses around him all of a sudden, he's like talk he he's uses all these like pet names that are that pet names that father figures use to for their kids, like the sport, yeah. buckaroo, slugger, tiger, buddy, ranger, champ, cowboy. He goes through a whole long litany of all these things trying to kind of ingratiate. Which is himself. very funny. And like the scene is like <laughs> it, it is. Tiger, tiger, champ, bud. Hey, Slugger. Hi, Slugger. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Where are you going? Where are you going? <laughs> but he, so he, he uses those, but then he also takes on the kind of 
the the typically in in this sort of like 50 style father figure way he takes on the punishment aspect of it because yes what is terrifying about the barn scene the interrogation scene but it's it's also that like you came home late i'm going to interrogate you about this he acts as if he's like his paternal figure mm-hmm. and then he grounds him in his room at the very end and he's like i'm going to sit here and make sure you don't go out of your room is very much like a, a grounding moment that a parent would do to a kid so it's insidious that this is how he is and how he acts with this kid that's not his at all yeah and it also felt like he felt weirdly privileged his mom too like mm. and that yeah. was just really creepy vibe where he's like i live here now and like i'm gonna pick the hot mm-hmm. lady and like be this figure and you're like where the fuck did right. you even come from dude like it's just so insidious and from like the jump he is not outright flirting with the mom but just it is like he feels like yeah, like, and, you know, that's probably going to happen for me. Like, like I'm a hot shot. You know? Like, this is like a bumpkins, and I'm a hot shot FBI guy. So, like, you're definitely going to think I'm cool. And it's like... Yeah. He assumes everyone will think he's cool. <laughs> yeah. And the moment when he takes off his hat and scrunches it down on Hogar's head, he's like, go play, go pretend to be a gangster. Yeah. It's just like... <laughs> Oh, I hate you so much. And I hate the way that you're so familiar with this family that you just literally met. It and I, me. I just noticed that there were actually like a couple things that I was surprised to notice for the first time on this viewing, because I've seen this movie like fucking, I mean, <laughs> it's got to be over 40 times. Um, yep. Like, one of the things is that when he first... After the, like, something big, Marv, something big <laughs> scene, the people that he talks to immediately before he talks to the army, it I just remember, like, oh, he's in an office. He's talking to, like, political guys or whatever. In my mind, I always thought he went back to Washington, but he's just talking to the fucking mayor of the little yes. town and, like, some confused cops. <laughs> yes. And they don't know what the hell he's talking about. Uh, before he ever goes to like any higher than that. And I just thought that was so funny that like, he just goes straight for it. But like, you know, he, he's, he's only got the people that are there. He Mm -hmm. doesn't have anyone on his side before that. Um, and the, eh, I'll save that. I'll save the other thing, but it does relate to dads. Speaking of that scene with the mayor, I love that he's like, I need your car. And he takes off. The mayor's like, what the fuck just happened? He's like looking at him like, Did this, is, what, who is this dude? He's just an imposition on everyone around yes. us. So this, is, this reminds me of my favorite scene of the entire movie, which is when Hogarth puts laxatives in his Sunday, And this movie like shaped – I don't know why this is like the scene I think of, but like to this very day, I'm like, yeah, that's how you use laxatives. You crumble them up and they work right away. <laughs> yes. Like, I swear to God, like, it's such a dumb way. Yeah. But, like, that scene made me laugh so hard. I don't know why. Probably when I was a kid and it was, like, funny poop humor. But for some reason, like, that image is the one that I think of when I think of this movie. There's a lot of defining images in that scene that have always stuck with me. Like, just down to the fact that when Kent opens his mouth full of ice cream, his entire inner mouth is yellow. Like, yes. <laughs> like they just colored his whole mouth yellow, which almost seems like a mistake. Like, well, like the so way, weird. and like the way Hogarth like deviously stirs the ice cream with that look yeah. on his face. Like he's just, oh. And it just made me love Hogarth even more in that moment where he was like, I, I will not be fucking with you anymore, sir. Like I will. And right. then he like bursts out of the bath, like when he when Kent bursts out of the bathroom and is like, 
I'm great now. And everyone's like, who the fuck? I, I, I feel like I, yeah, like, <laughs> but you yeah. know, 99 was a big year for laxatives because American Pie came out that year, too. <laughs> <laughs> that was a big year. It's a big year for laxatives. Thank you, Terry. Yeah, huge year. Wow. You're welcome. Really, really <laughs> appreciate that. Um, non sequiturs. Yeah, wow. I'm here got... for it. Okay, but can I talk about the moment that fucked me up as a kid? And then, Terry, I want to hear your Please. story yes. about the first time you saw it. So, besides the end where he says, like, you stay, I go, which oh, makes me cry every mm-hmm. time, the scene that yep. really broke my heart is when he sees the deer. Oh, yeah. Bambi. Fuck. Like, it's so... That, that part devastated me. Like, when he... I will always remember the part where he, like, touches the deer and, like, sticks a little bit oh. to his finger and then falls down. Yeah. And he just is, like, so devastated. And you see this giant alien robot have, like, these very complex emotions, but also, like, very yeah. seemingly very simple, but these complex emotions about living things. And it, like, absolutely, like, fucked me up in, like, this realization about, like, living things and how we treat living things and how even a deer's life is precious and how, like, we're seeing through yeah. this mm. this creature, this, like, robot's eyes and his, his not understanding of, like, how we kill and this very anti-gun thing in this movie about, like, violence and killing things in general. And it's just, like, it's just heart wrenching and like it's pretty early in the movie and it just sets this whole tone of like the giant being so much more than just like a thing that fell out of the sky not like an alien from a sci-fi movie like the movie that hogarth was watching with the brain coming out of the jar and like inching across the floor like it just goes against that idea about like sci-fi creatures being these harmful monsters and it's just like this is gonna hurt (laughs) (laughs) yeah It's, it's also just interesting the way like Tracking the way that one responds to the whole souls don't die scene through like aging into an adult, because like when you're a kid, I feel like you just see that scene. And like, I mean, if you're anything like Hogarth's demographic, which I was Mm -hmm. uh, like, you just kind of go like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, I recognize that speech like Mm -hmm. that sounds like what they say in church right um and they specifically don't say god or heaven or whatever but you know he's describing obviously christian beliefs yeah and like then you know i think at one point i like got a little older and i saw that scene i was like uh what is this is it like some you know like christian message or whatever and then like you get a little more you know older and it's like it's obviously not a christian theme in the movie it's that makes perfect sense for what nine-year-old 50s raised hogarth would be taught about death yeah Mm -hmm. he's teaching another thing death with the only thing that he has which is like kind of a folksy adaptation of christian beliefs and like then you can kind of move on and just be like engaging with it on a purely philosophical level, which is like, you know, people talk about souls all the time. I don't know. I, yeah. I guess just like that's a personal sort of response to it for me because, you know, raised Catholic, lapsed, yep. resented it. Yep. Now I'm kind of like weird, but okay. Like that's <laughs> my that's my attitude towards Catholicism. Yes. 
Yep, me too. What I love about that, though, before we move on, is that when I was doing a little bit of digging on this, that he did speak and uh, Brad Bird spoke in 1999 about the idea that I pitched to Warner Brothers after reading the book when I said that I really liked it, but I want to do something different with it was I said, what if a gun had a soul? And so this idea of like, you know, he is a thing that's been created to destroy potentially, but what if he could have that ability to choose because he is sentient? He does there's something else inside of him other than just this need to destroy. And the yeah. way that the movie kind of contrasts that with the, the government in this point that, uh, that is trying, that is supposedly trying to protect everyone. But then this guy, the government man is like, we must destroy this thing. We must, we must, we didn't build it. We don't know who did. It doesn't really matter. It wasn't us born. It wasn't us built. We must destroy it. And yeah. so you take those two, those two things and you have humans talking about the, the only thing we can do when we see this weird thing is destroy it. And then you have this thing that was built to destroy that is like, maybe you don't have to destroy. And so there's yeah. that, that kind of thing there is like encapsulated, I think, in his, his idea of like, well, this deer had a soul. You have that ability because he follows it up a little bit later. Like you can choose, you can choose to not be a Tomo. You can choose to be Superman. You are who again. you choose to be. <laughs> oh, that line. It's, he says it to him uh, when his eyes get red and he's like, you are who you choose to Yeah. Also, just want to say, um, the ending of, of uh, The Avengers is the ending of this movie. Oh, my God. Which Avengers? The first one. Tony Stark. He's like, yeah. He chooses to like fly up with what I think it's a nuke into yeah. the like Tesseract thing. You're right. Also, Wait, is also that the last I'd argue one? the ending of The Dark Knight Rises. Wait, is that the last uh, one? Like the most recent one? That was like the end. No, the f- that's the first the Avengers. The very first one where he's fighting against Loki and then. Oh, yeah. I don't remember Jack shit about that movie, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just always thought that was uh, that was like very very similar to the Iron Giant ending. No, it is now that you mention yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, Terry, I want to hear about when you first saw this movie because it sounds very nice. So I saw this movie in like probably in my lifetime, probably like the best two weeks of my life. Um, nice. Was when I saw this movie. I didn't see it on release. I had I so it came out ninety nine, so it would have been eighteen, and I was that kind of annoying like eighteen like uh animation because like right. the animation I'll be honest in in the nineties was not for me. I mean sure you know there were some Disney things, but like it didn't really hit on the same level as some of the animation that I saw when I was a kid that I felt where it was about things or a little bit more adult than the stuff that we were getting the Disney fied animation we were getting. So I never really thought about it. And in 2001, I went to a two-week screenwriting seminar uh, hosted by a, a director or a writer from um, UCLA, Lou Hunter. He lived in Nebraska. He might, I think he might still live there. And that's where I lived. And so it was a two-week seminar. I went to it, had the time of my life. It was probably the best experience where it's like, you know, Here's this little weird kid that loves to write and doesn't really relate to a lot of people in this sort of very red part of the country. Hmm. And I'm surrounded by people from all over the country that flew in to be taught by Lou Hunter. And there's, it's like the first time that I was like around really creative people. And we were there and I remember there's two guys there. I cannot, I don't remember their names at all, but I remember we were hanging out and we were talking movies and one of them was like, 
oh, have you guys seen The Iron Giant? And I was like, that animated movie? And they're like, yeah, it's so good. And I was like, really? And so we were out and about. We found it at a store. We bought it. He had this portable DVD player. So there's the three of us huddled around this little portable DVD player watching this movie and then crying (laughs) as it crested to the end. And it was like this such this like magical moment of like watching this film as like people that were studying the the craft of screenwriting, seeing how he was developing characters, seeing how things were being structured. And yet not being able to uh, turn off our, our emotional center as we were like watching this. And it was such a, yeah. such a fantastic moment in, in a two week part of my life that was like just this magical time that had like absolutely nothing to do with the real world. It was like two weeks outside of anything that I had to do with work or school or anything else. It was just this magical period. And that is when I saw this movie and I hadn't seen it since then. Cause it was such this like, perfect moment until last night when I watched it for this podcast. Wow. That's so That's incredible. Amazing. Yeah. So I hold this movie. This movie is very special to me because of that. Oh, this movie is so incredible. <laughs> oh my God. Also oh. just in terms of like watching it as like a piece of not animation, but filmmaking, mm-hmm. one of the most maddeningly perfect scripts. Oh, it's so good. That is one of the tightest scripts I have, like, ever seen. Like, you, I was just thinking last night while watching it, like, this is a movie, and I think that a lot of Brad Bird's movies are like this, is, like, this doesn't strictly need to be animated. Like, this could very easily be just a live-action movie, but I'm so fucking glad that it is Mm. animated. Like, I, I mean, it's... The animation is so goddamn beautiful. It's in this beautiful. Movie. All the woods and like the, just everything about like it, like Rockwell made it looks like a nor. I feel like it, it feels like a Norman Rockwell painting at times, like the backgrounds yeah. and just like that 1950s small town vibe is captured mm, yeah. so well, both from like this Cold War anxiety but also just like the diner that they all hang out at and like when he's home alone watching the black and white movie and just like stuffing twinkies with more whipped cream and just like shoving Mm. them in his mouth and it it just has a very good vibe yes oh the The opening sci-fi like heavy the sci-fi, sci-fi vibe vibes. and then that v- that view of the the meteor hurtling through this giant yes. twisting storm and then we get the raging sea that sea is beautifully animated and it's just like the way that that un- unfolds where it's like the 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 fisherman sees the the lights and he thinks it's the light you know the lighthouse and then it turns and it's this imposing oh, forbidding so almost terrifying thing that's staring down yeah. on him it's so well crafted and such a perfect opening that immediately, like I remember immediately like going, Oh, this, this is something different than I was expecting when I first saw it. And it just hooks you immediately in the story and then whisks you off on this, like this fable. And it's, it's so, ah, it's so good. (laughs) Also like the, the voice direction in it Mm. is so like naturalistic. I feel like right now we're in like an animation period where an, this is not this is not a negative but that like we're in a period where a lot of animation is intentionally trying to get people to not sound like voice actors Mm. and like 
I think a lot of it is maybe Bob's Burgers like influencing this because, you know, it's been like a decade since that yeah. came out. And I think that a lot of animation is is doing the a similar kind of just like this literally just sounds like a person just kind of like mumbling and talking, which is great. But mm-hmm. like this was 20 years before that. And like everyone is just talking they're they're just like acting they're not doing voices and right. they have lines but like sometimes it's like they're like stumbling on each other's lines and people are like muttering things and it's just so natural and i feel like brad bird has got to be some kind of amazing voice director just because you know he's got all these actors that are actors not voice actors they're yeah. like film actors and they're delivering film performances yeah well, and I think that has a lot to do with how I feel about like the t- how this movie navigates tone so well, because you have that really like kind of scary sci-fi beginning, and then you have that scary kind of like you have that setup of the town, and then you have the scary reveal for a Hogarth. But then you have these beautiful tender moments of them like doing cannonballs yeah. in the lake, and mm. like the, so squir- fun. the squirrels in his pants, and like all these. Oh, yeah, <laughs> love that scene. <laughs> like these really cute scenes that make it all the more endearing it's not just like a movie a sci-fi movie about a robot like it's a a movie about a kid growing up and finding friendship through again like we talked about found family and it's just so sweet and it makes it all the more sad and heartbreaking and emotional because you really do like brad bird makes you really fall in love with all these characters like you really care about hogarth you really care about the iron giant you really care about dean like everyone is just so lovable and weird like a little weird but just like so genuine like they don't feel like cartoon characters they feel like genuine people and that that feeling makes it all the more impactful and effective yeah dean is like not a beatnik archetype he's a person who was a beatnik in the fifties. And like, you know, you look around his house and like, he likes shit that someone who was into beatnik culture would just like, he's got a little Kerouac poster in the back. Mm, And love that. that Speaking of stuff in the back, there is a detail that I noticed on this watch in Hogarth's room that I had never, ever noticed before. And I think it is the only reference to his dad in the entire movie. Um, and it doesn't like change anything, but it does. It's, I, I think this is amazing. So when he looks at the clock one time, I think when he's waiting up all night, mm-hmm. you see a picture next to the clock of like a, it's a black and white photo of a man getting into, uh, like a biplane. And oh. it's clearly his dad who was a pilot. And then you're just like, oh shit. His dad was a pilot and died in the war. Yeah. And like, then you start thinking about, oh, he has that helmet. He has that like goggles, like flying helmet. Oh, shit. And then you start realizing this character has like this huge hole in his life. You can see all of the echoes of his dad on his whole life. And they never talk about it in the movie. And that's so fucking incredible. I didn't even realize that, but it makes took perfect me twenty sense. years to realize it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it it actually makes, uh, gosh, it makes Mansley even more insidious because here is yeah. the government coming in trying to fill the hole of the person that probably died in the war for the government, 
And Mansley is this, on the surface, so patriotic person, like, right, he's doing all this stuff for the government. And then by the end of the movie, he's like, screw the country, I want to yeah. live. And so there's like this, that's this yeah. false sense of patriotism that comes out of this character that is, that is a government man that, again, probably took the father from him. I didn't even think about that. It just, I'm just, ooh, that makes it even, even grosser. Yeah. Wow. Holy shit. Yeah, man. Ugh. Okay. Uh, wow. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. So the other thing that I that really struck out to me this time, kind of like taking this into more joyous territory potentially, is um, this is a movie for the outsiders. Yeah. I, I'm not. This isn't. I wouldn't say this is a, a queer movie, but it definitely, as someone who is queer, you can kind of feel that this movie is for you in a way because, like, mm. when when. When Dean is first introduced, he is looked down upon by the the townspeople. Like they compare him, the, the fisherman comes running and he's like, "Oh, you know, I saw this." And he's like, "Oh, you were drunk." And then Dean tries to stand up for him, and they're like, "Yeah, well, you know, this guy over here." They can com- they compare him to this this drunken man is like this this negative. And then when he tells Hogarth, he's like, "Oh, I didn't see anything." He's like, "But if we don't stand up for the kooks, who will?" And so yeah. it's like this idea of like standing out for that outsider. And that, and then later on when Hogarth says, like, you, you are who you choose to be. You choose. You have that. You have Dean that, that his, like, he loves, he loves jazz music. He loves to create art out of junk. He loves, like, his thing is not about production that this town obviously is all about. This idea of, like, the fishermen and doing all the stuff that is about that sort of blue collar or, you know, industrial type stuff. He is creating art and he wants to do that and people look down on him weird so that kind of that aspect of it with the chosen family aspect just like really like hit home for me this on this viewing i think that's totally fair uh it i I, there's another line where the giant wants to come you know he, he is running full speed towards the towards the town and Hogarth stops him and he says like you can't go there they just aren't ready for you yet. Oh yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Like, damn. It's yes. I think that it is just one of those beautiful it's one of those beautiful allegorical things that you can apply to so many universal feelings. I don't really know if Brad Bird was like thinking about half the things that I, you know, apply to this movie. Like, I don't even know if Brad Bird is really anti-gun. <laughs> but well, like, actually, oh yeah, because Terry, you wrote this quote down, I, and I wanted to make sure we brought that up. I did find that at a 2016 Comic-Con, he was talking about his sister Susan, who I love very much, was very close to, died of gun violence. Pointlessly, huh. she was killed by her husband. I was devastated. When you shoot somebody, you're not just killing that person. You're killing a part of all the people that love that person. And so that was like the inspiration for this movie. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. He is a weird guy because sometimes his, his views kind of lean almost like conservative and like a little like, well, it's everyone is always arguing about like whether his shit is like Randian or not. But like, um, yeah, this is the one movie that kind of escapes that because it really is not about any of that. But like his later movies, like the Incredibles and Ratatouille and everything, like everyone is always talking about. Do you really think that like, you know, there are just like some special people and they deserve to be like better than everyone else or what? Mm. (laughs) I love Ratatouille. Anyway. Yeah. The other thing. So. 
Great movie. <laughs> it is a great, right, it is a great about, movie. Ratatouille. A great movie. I've been really trying to stop myself from talking about The Incredibles because I think it is like such a, a partner movie to this film. But It really um, is. I mean, you can see like a, a the DNA that goes through both those films. Uh, but the other thing is, is that so we have that inspiring Brad Bird to make this movie. But then I was also looking about because this is based on a Ted Hughes novel mm-hmm. that he wrote, The Iron Man, which they, you know, changed later because of The Iron Man. <laughs> and that's why oh. it wasn't called The Iron Man. Um, but so but reportedly Ted Hughes wrote this in the wake of his wife, Sylvia Plath's suicide, and he wrote it to comfort his kids. Jesus So you Christ. have this book that was born out of tragedy of Sylvia Plath's suicide. You have Brad Bird making this movie out of the, the pointless death of his sister. So there's like, this movie is all about kind of trying to find some kind of solace and some kind of hope in a very tragic world. Is everyone okay? Like, are we okay? Like we love this movie. <laughs> like it's obviously so like, are we all collectively okay? No, the answer is no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly Absolutely not. fucking not from like the, from the ground up from the, from both the writer of the original book to us now, no one is okay. in the experience no. of this, of this, <laughs> Thing. I had no idea about that, about the original That's book. I remember wild. picking that book up as a kid. I found it in my library uh, in in Sacramento. And I like remember looking through the book and going, oh, wow, this is so weird. This is nothing like that movie that I love. Uh, but I don't remember like I remember that the plot has nothing to do with like the military and stuff and no there's like some kind of space dragon i think that he ends up fighting hell yeah what i would like wow that's what i read when i was like looking at wikipedia i was like trying to figure out trying to find the because i've never read it and it sounded like there was a space dragon okay (laughs) sounds cool i mean like that sounds sounds kind of rad oh i have a question for you guys after after you finish terry oh no i i actually had a question for you guys so you you start did you watch the version the original version or the one with the two additional scenes like in there i've seen both uh whatever is on hulu is the one that i saw recently and i'm not 100 percent sure did it have a scene where the giant has a nightmare no okay well that's mm-hmm. yeah, I good that because one. i i watched a version that has these additional scenes uh kind of like stuck in there and i don't like it <laughs> why because they're upsetting or because they're not they're not as good well first of all they were animated fucking 15 years after the original so they look bad Mm. uh and like digital they look Mm. like they were animated digitally with like digital cell animation and the original one of the defining things about it is how hand-drawn it looks if i seeing the like hd transfer of this and like looking up close and being able to see the pencil lines Mm. was just like oh i love that but like there's this there's these two additional scenes on the like re-release of this one of them is like was included on the original dvd as just a deleted scene called like the giant's nightmare Mm -hmm. or something um and it is it's like it shows a snippet of his backstory. Oh. And I don't really think mm. that is necessary at all. No. 
And then there's another scene. There's only one other, but like it's a scene very early in the movie where Dean is at the diner and Hogarth's mom is at the diner and they start to like flirt a little bit. And I just don't think that's right. Like we get it. They're both fucking hot and like 35. (laughs) Come on. We understand. Of course they end up together. I never questioned that. It's Harry Connick Jr. and Jennifer Aniston. Hello. Yep. Hello. Yeah, it's it's like unquestioned. Well, and I also think about um, you mentioning the the dream and sort of getting his little bit of backstory. You don't. That's unnecessary because totally this movie uses everyone's knowledge of of sci fi in order to tell the story. Yeah, with the way that. Um, you know, the fisherman comes running up and he's like saying, you know, he first says maybe it's Sputnik and then he's like, oh, maybe it's an invader from Mars. Maybe it, it came from outer space. Like that he's dropping sci-fi movie names, right? Yeah. And then when, when the Iron Giant takes on his like, destructive form you have the tripods coming out of him and it's obviously referencing war of the world so like you have these this imagery it doesn't really matter you don't need to know anything else other than he is the pinnacle of what sci-fi movies say we should be afraid of in the in the 50s and it's proving that he's not that he we shouldn't fear him and you don't need anything else kent says it best he's like i don't know where he came from the russians the chinese i don't care like all he knows we didn't build it and that's that's reason enough to assume we need to destroy it. Like, yeah, <laughs> he is other. He is yep. other. So uh, my question is, because I was thinking about this this time when I was watching this film, is so this movie is obviously it's set in the 50s and there's that one video teaching the kids about the atomic bomb where it's a song yep. and they hide under the desk. And the, the image that I remember that is clearly out of everything else that is stuck in my head for 20 years is a scene of the kid, the, the animated kid hiding under his desk where everything yep. else around him is obliterated. But that mm-hmm. desk is magical. And the way that it satirizes that notion of how we try to placate kids and placate public by saying oh if you go in these shelters oh if you go under this desk you'll be okay and i was thinking about this because i i grew up in alaska when my my first like eight to ten years of my life where there's earthquakes and i remember going to school and we would have like videos about earthquake earthquake drills and we would hide under a desk and you know that was going to protect us and i Mm -hmm. guess an earthquake is not an atomic bomb but i was thinking again about how you know i'm wondering did you guys ever have any like school drills where you had to like hide under a desk or anything like that uh, I definitely did. Do you, do you have anything you want to, Mary Beth? Um, we had a school shoot, we had school shooting drills, which was oh, pretty yeah. traumatic. That's what I was. Yeah. Yeah. We had those that were really scary. We had a, we had a couple tornado drills because like we randomly would get tornadoes here. Mm, I'm, mm-hmm. I grew up in Maryland, um, on the East coast, mm. but yeah, we had, a, oh, we had a, we did a, we did bomb drills cause we had a bomb threat once. And so they started doing bomb drills at my middle school because yeah. we got a Jesus. fucking bomb threat. Yeah, it was more like the horrors of which people act rather than natural disasters. So like the vibe of that like atomic bomb isn't as dramatic, but still like the kind of man-made human propelled mm-hmm. horrific stuff that could happen. I definitely like also I, I have some very early memories in my in my elementary school in uh Sacramento of like school shooter drills. Um, I believe we also did have a bomb threat one time. Um, and I remember Jesus. thinking about this movie. <laughs> I remember thinking, and I was just like, so does that do anything or no? And then I moved to the Midwest and I experienced tornado drills. Yep. Ah. And like, 
it's the same shit. So it's just like you are a kid and, you know, you see the movie and then you have all these drills where everyone's solution is hide under a desk still. Yep. And it's like, um, guys, what if this is all bullshit, like you're saying? And well, yeah, that is a... With the atomic bomb, it's like, it's not going to not go under the desk. <laughs> Like it's, yeah, that's what right. it, it's such a great it's set so comically like, like image of satire because of by that, the way yeah. it's not even satire if you guys have I've looked up these videos on YouTube and it's there's no exaggeration that is what they are they're animated mm-hmm. they do songs and it's about hiding under a desk so mm-hmm. you can protect yourself from the atomic bomb it's it's wild it's wild <laughs> absolutely. But, yeah, I mean, I grew up in the in the I'm in the Midwest too. After we moved out of Alaska and we moved to to Nebraska, Alaska, Nebraska, and we um we would hide in the for tornado drills in the hallways. Like yep. we would be just lined okay. up in the hallways, yeah. I guess, to be away from the windows. But I'm like, dude, if the tornado comes through here, it ain't gonna matter, <laughs> right? Those tornado drills were like that was another step on my journey of of doom anxiety because i just like it's Jeez. like you just sit there and wait for maybe disaster to happen and that is something that uh has never had a great reaction from me no nope. and i have like i have really bad ocd so intrusive thoughts are really not great when these things happen yeah. and all i can think about mm-hmm. is like my family's dying i am dead tornado is coming we're all going to die Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's really fun. It is. It's great. It's great to exist. Which yeah. is a feeling that this movie gives you, though, too. On top of like the hopefulness, there are moments of like, well, everyone's dead. <laughs> yeah. It's wild. Yeah, and I've always just like felt a felt a. I don't know. I. I feel like Brad Bird gets me on some level that he's just like, I want to make a big family blockbuster and it's all going to be about dread of the end of the world. <laughs> and like, it's going to be cute like, and also fucking heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll bring this conversation up to you guys when I make my next movie, because it's even more inspired by that feeling than Dimland is. Yay. Oh. <laughs> Woo. Um, yeah. On that note, is there anything else we want to talk about with the Iron Giant, or do we want to give us our rating out of five? I mean, do you guys want to just throw it on and maybe just watch it again? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> like- <laughs> I do. I do want to do a, a shout out to. I love the little sci-fi movie that. Oh my god! Um, it's Hogarth so watches. good. The yeah. the scientist speaking in that monotone. <laughs> yeah. I just, huh? I love it so much. Oh, it's the like, so good. Oh, I where seem was it? to have forgot my keys in the lab. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or that, darn, what a waste of a good brain. <laughs> or like the fact when he's like, how about a nightcap? Say my place. And Hogarth like knows enough to know what that means. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And he does. Like, I lo- oh, I love it. I love it. It's such a good moment. It's such, it's like another one of those moments I always think about when I think of this movie. One, because I wanted to put whipped cream in my extra whipped cream in the Twinkie. <laughs> Thank you. Like, so badly wanted extra whipped cream in my Twinkies. I was so devastated as a kid when I like saw the movie. I was like, oh, wow, there's holes in those Twinkies. Interesting. You can like put more whipped cream. And then I went out and I got <laughs> Twinkies. I made my parents get Twinkies, which they did not want to do. And then, I opened them up and was like, where's the holes? 
There's no holes in these Twinkies. I can't do this to be like Hogarth. Why can't I be like Hogarth? Yeah, that's all I wanted. But like him, just like anyway. it's also all I like. Seriously, I was like, I want my, I want to be left home alone with junk food. Like, why is my mom yes. always around? Like yeah. being mad that my parents were around to like take right. care of me. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. And he's like cozied up under the blankets watching the movie and like it sets that really like that tone of when you're left home alone for the first time and you're mm-hmm. like really excited but also scared. And Mom's then, my like, best life. Don't eat snacks, don't watch horror movies, go to bed early. And he's yeah, like, he's like uh-huh, sure. Yep. And he's all above like uh. Twinkies with the whipped cream and oh such a such a great moment. I just wanted to be a latchkey kid. God damn it. All I wanted to do is be a latchkey kid. <laughs> damn it, mom. Why did you and dad have to stay together? And why did you have to have a no side job for the first 10 years of my life? Ugh. Ugh. Anyway. Well, on that note, shall we give this phenomenal movie our rating out of five? Heck yeah, we should. All right, Terry, how many uh, laxative Sundays out of five do you give the mm. Iron Giant? I There's no beating around the bush. This is five delicious laxative Sundays. That is a day and a half probably of being in the bathroom. <laughs> but I'm going to snarf all five of those down because this movie is <laughs> this movie is fantastic. It's yeah. I, I was worried watching it when, when, when you had suggested what this movie because i had such a perfect memory of this film when i first saw it and i've like i said not, not seen it in 20 years because it, it was the summer of tw- 2001 and i know that because we also went to go see tomb raider and we tore that movie apart so we went from watching tomb raider in the movie theaters and tearing that uh, as being snotty like script nerds apart to go and watch this movie and just be like utterly reduced to tears and so i i was afraid of rewatching this movie but no it it stands the test of time this movie is perfect at you you mentioned peter that it this the script is 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 just you can't get any better than a script it is yeah. Yeah. what 87 minutes and it like feels like it, it tackles so many different themes in such a short runtime and it never overstays its welcome this movie is perfect yeah. uh what about you mary beth i will also give this movie five lakhs of sundays out of five this movie is perfect it has been absolutely formative to me i think about it all the time this movie is just like it's so important to me but also my family like it's our family movie my mm. stepdad and mm. i have a couple like movies we always watch together and talk about and this is one of them and like my stepdad is my father figure in my life and so it, like i get those emotions sometimes when thinking about like found family and father figures who yeah. aren't necessarily like biologically related to you so that movie really brought us together and that's like one of the huge reasons why i love this movie but it just was formative and has just shaped me as a person in such an amazing way in ways that I didn't really think about until I watched it again. And I was like, this movie really is like one of the most important movies of all time for me. And so it's perfect. All right, Peter, I think I know what your rating is going to be, but you have the final (laughs) word. What, how many, how many lacks of Sundays? Okay. As a baseline, Five out of five. <laughs> I'd also like to add five out of five overstuffed Twinkies. Yes. yes. Five out of five uh, 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 junkyard cars. Mm-hmm. Five, out, five, out, five, of five out of five cups of espresso. Nukes. F- cups of espresso. Yes. <laughs> cups of espresso. Five out of five nukes. Five out of five uh, BB guns. Fucking this movie is just like, yeah, I everything you said fully agree with. 
Um, I think it was probably like four or five years ago that I like reckoned with just how high I hold this movie um, and like revisited it and just realized like, you know, like you said, Terry, like there's, there is no diminishing returns. Like mm-hmm. this is not just like a nostalgia movie. Mm-hmm. This is like an actual, like incredible piece of cinema that like, I think now probably is being regarded as such, but like it did take a really long time. Yeah, it did. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's one of the best movies of the last 20 years or well, I guess more than it's 99, 20, so last 20 30 years. Let's 30. just say last 30 years. <laughs> Keep it safe. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, awesome. What an incredible movie. I'm so jealous that you were 18 in a year where you could go see like the matrix and oh, fight club I'm and Iron giant 99 God. best year for cinema hands it down seriously is an absolutely Ever. incredible fucking year i mean you want you want like you want like dr- comedic dramas you have magnolia you have american beauty you have american matrix you have fight club you Let's have that one but <laughs> <laughs> you it's just a, a perfect it's fine. year it is a perfect year. oh i I loved it when I was 18. I was so enamored. Oh, sure. That movie. Oh, when you're 18, 100%. you're like, oh, this is art. Mm-hmm. Wow, it really I, I was so captures. pretentious at that time, too. I That was my first screenplay that I ever bought, and I would <laughs> study it. Like, that it tracks. was like, <laughs> that one in Magnolia, first screen, t- first two purchases from Amazon, actually. Wow. And both wow. screenplays. Yep. What a fucking nerd. I'm just kidding. That was me. Yeah. <laughs> pretentious film nerd back in You when are I was the 18. problem. <laughs> yeah. Buying the American Beauty screenplay off Amazon. Uh, yeah. Hey. Who'd, have thunk, who'd have thunk that that would have been anything that anyone would have a problem with back in 99? American yep. Beauty? What? We love Kevin Spacey. Have you heard right? of Amazon? It's great. Uh, you, can get a, you can get any book that you want from Amazon. That was like the big thing Seems like thing a great service. Me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for joining us to talk about this beautiful per- perfect movie uh the iron giant where can us find you, so you? what do you have coming up and when do you, do you have any idea when other people can watch dimland again so uh i do i can't say yet. okay <laughs> and if i can i don't know if i can so okay. uh, gotcha. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you guys after the thingy but um uh, so Dimland will be in at least two more fests over the next two months. Uh, we're going to be in Woods Hole Film Festival, and I don't know when this is coming out. We may already have, but um, and then we're going to be in Fort Myers Beach Film Festival. Uh, also waiting on like fifty other festivals to Ooh. say anything right now. So hopefully a couple more. And then um, there will be a substantial amount of viewing options uh, come in the fall. Hell yeah. Oh, that's so exciting. Beautiful. Cool. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, and where can people find you? Uh, You can find me on Instagram. It's the only social media that I've been able to uh, keep track of whatsoever. I'm at PCC Films on Instagram. You can also find Dimland on Instagram at Dimland Movie um, or DimlandMovie.com. And, uh, yeah, we got a fucking newsletter that I update semi-regularly. Um, and yeah, I don't know if I'll ever go back to it, but I did 
have a podcast mini series for a little while this year called something, something double feature. Um, and it was me curating a season of double features that all link thematically. Um, it was a lot of fun. It got me through quarantine Mm -hmm. towards the end and, uh, was a nice project to have. I have like three more episodes recorded, so maybe I'll edit them sometime, but, uh, yeah, that, you know, exists. There's like six episodes people can check out. Um, cool. And I am uh, working on a second feature called The Moon in America. And if anyone wants to just send a couple hundred thousand dollars to my PayPal, uh, you may. Uh, it's petercampbellfilms at gmail.com. <laughs> and uh, any amount is fine. Cool. So that's beautiful. <laughs> we'll plug that in the show notes. We'll Heck yeah, we will. Um, <laughs> not joking please send no. me several hundred thousand dollars for not that joking movie either we will put that in the show notes listeners um so listeners you've heard from us but we want to hear from you uh what was your experience with the iron giant you can send us an email at scarred for life podcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to us directly on twitter i am at mb mcandrews and i'm a gaily dreadful and of course don't forget to follow the podcast on twitter at scarred podcast and please don't forget to review rate and subscribe thank you to eric power for our artwork thank you to sean keller for our music thank you everyone for listening please stay safe out there but most importantly stay creepy and until next time As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. 
from the team that brought you small town dicks this is the briefing room episode one drops on august 30th we'll meet you in the briefing room acast helps creators launch grow and monetize their podcasts everywhere acast.com